Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We are heard in over 60 countries around the world, and we are the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. I really appreciate all the, um, the calls and the emails and visits to the website, and uh, I really appreciate every single person that's listening to us each week, and I hope that you benefit from the um, advice that myself and the guests that we have on the program bring to you. I also appreciate comments, good and bad, and suggestions, uh, so please keep them coming in. No more uh, emails about my accent, can't do anything about it. Been living in California 27 years. I know I still sound like an Aussie, but that's what you get. This show's primarily about entrepreneurs, and we want to provide you with information that can assist you to become more successful and to help you avoid the mistakes that many, many, many other entrepreneurs before you have made. And one of the keys to being a great entrepreneur in this new technology era, I believe, is to assist people that are less fortunate than yourself, to equip them with the skills to better their lives. And I really admire what people like Mark Zuckerberg and co are doing in putting so much money into schools and into underprivileged areas. That's why I'm really pleased that uh, through the American Institute of Sales, Marketing and Management, of which I'm honorary president, we've been able to forge a relationship with hashtag YesWeCode. And the aim of YesWeCode is to teach 100,000 underprivileged youth to code to a high proficiency and totally change their lives. So we, we're very proud of our relationship with hashtag YesWeCode. And if you're in sales, marketing or management and you want to better yourself, learn, build a, um, a bigger network of contacts, which is what it's really all about, you should join AISMM.US and you should do it today. There's no time like the present. There's been an awful lot of stuff on uh, CNN about Yes We Code. They are a partner that's come in very heavily with, um, with Yes We Code, so keep your eyes out for that. It's a fantastic cause. And at AISMM, we have a, um, a wonderful panel of advisors. And if you go to the website, AISMM.us, you'll see the people that are advising us, some of the best people in the world across 15 categories, ranging from advertising and customer service, digital media, entrepreneurship, legal, IP, right through to entertainment. And I'll highlight um, one of these categories each week from now on. And, but as an example of the quality advisors we have, um, I've just selected the entertainment category and uh, all the advisors that we have are all friends of mine. We have Scotty Page from Pink Floyd, 
Freddie Ravel from Earth, Wind and Fire. They're um, the entertainment uh, advisors in the US. And in Australia, we have Scotty Page from Pink Floyd again and the legendary Normie Rowe um, has joined the panel. So if you're in business, you cannot afford not to be a member because that's the calibre of people we have in every category. Now, we're about um, helping entrepreneurs, as I mentioned, and I wanted to bring to you a story about a former Goldman Sachs employee who launched a startup, and uh, she says that the best piece of career advice she ever received consisted of just three words, act as if. Act as if. Great advice, I reckon. Becca Brown, she's only in her mid-30s. She began working at Goldman Sachs, and for those of you who don't know, Goldman Sachs is one of the really difficult places to land a job on Wall Street, and uh, so she's obviously a very smart lady. In 2009, she left to launch Soulmates, which is a line of women's shoe care products. She was interested in shoes, so um, a good way to go. In just six years, Soulmates products are now carried in over 3,000 stores worldwide, and in 2014, they sold about 200,000 pairs of heel guards which is its signature product, and she attributes all her success to the advice she received in college, act as if. Becca says it's a mentality, a state of mind, a perspective. You know, things aren't always going to go your way in business, in your career, or even in your life. There'll be setbacks and disappointments, and you might be tempted to get really down on yourself, but you have to act as if, as if it didn't happen, as if it didn't phase you, as if things had gone your way, and then get on with it. I think that is a really great piece of advice to follow, <laughs> and I, for one, should be a person that follows that advice more often. We've often spoken about 3D printing on this show. I, um, I love it. And it's a technology that's really changing the world and, and, and in some great areas like, for example, the medical field. Well, an engineering company in Italy has created a 40-foot tall, 20-foot wide 3D printer that uses locally sourced eco-friendly materials like dirt and clay and other materials to construct low-cost houses. Now, this technology can be used to produce housing in developing nations or to provide relief to those in um, disaster zones that have lost their homes. According to the United Nations, by 2030, approximately 3 billion people, that's 3,000 million people, will need proper housing and access to basic infrastructure like water and sanitation systems. Wow, that's almost half the people on the planet. Now, this Italian group are not the first company to use 3D printing for construction. 
a Chinese construction company, uh, I think we reported it on this show about a year ago, used similar technology to construct modular homes and actually a 30-odd story building um, using a massive 3D printer in China. And a design firm in Amsterdam is 3D printing a bridge over the Amsterdam Canal. Now, if you've been to Amsterdam and you've seen those canals, they're pretty wide, and uh, but they're 3D printing a new bridge. The great thing about 3D printing is it's inexpensive. It dramatically reduces labour costs, which is half the problem in many countries. It eliminates waste, so there's no stuff left on the on the site that gets thrown out, and also dramatically reduces construction time. So 3D printing for building is a fantastic solution. Now, as I mentioned, this program is all about entrepreneurs and we love them and that's what we're here for. So to be an entrepreneur, you don't need to um, build a new app. You don't need to be in technology. Um you can, you can buy a dry cleaning business or you can sell knickknacks at the market. You're still an entrepreneur. Get out of your comfort zone, take a risk, get out there, shake the hell out of the world and you're an entrepreneur. And I love this story about a lady named Marnie Ausler. When she was 24, she bought her first house, which is a $240,000 fixer-upper the deposit ate up $18,000, which is everything she had, which she'd used. Um, she'd saved up working for $11 an hour when she left college. She did everything she could to save money. She f- fed cats. She washed cars. She did everything she could to make a dollar. She literally lived on peanut butter for two years. The house she bought was a dump. She didn't have any money left over, so she didn't. She couldn't hire anybody to fix it up. So with no experience, she fixed it up herself because she couldn't afford to do anything else. She would hold party, painting parties with friends. I don't know how that worked out for her. I've never seen it work out too good. But painting parties with friends. I suppose it's all right if you don't drink. All the party... Um, painting parties that I've been to, people have a drink and that sort of screws up the system. Um, And she built a driveway with her bare hands in the rain using three-quarter inch bluestone. She sold it nine months later for $350,000. So she used this money to buy a lot in a better location, closer to the ocean, where she started building another one. She lived at that house for two years while she did it up until she sold it in 2006 and bought another lot and did the same thing again. So then in 2007, she actually started a company, Marnie Homes. So in her first year, she made $450,000. This year, just a few years later, she will earn $7 million. So... um, Marnie advises people who want to start their own business to think outside the box. Don't be discouraged by rejection. 
And she says, it's really important to have support from your friends and family and have the determination to keep fighting every day for what you really want to do. Well, go girl. That's what being an entrepreneur is all about. Get outside your comfort zone, bite the bullet and go for it. You've got to really admire people like that. It takes guts to be an entrepreneur. And if you don't have the balls to do it, well, go sit on public transport, hate every day you go to work, take an aid on your family and be a miserable bastard. And don't listen to this show because if you're not an entrepreneur, you're depressing me. And the only thing we like more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show than an entrepreneur is a young entrepreneur. So we love 16-year-old Oliver Housley, who won the 2015 Google Science Fair with her project to develop a fast, cheap and stable test for the Ebola virus. This girl is 16. She goes to high school. It gives easy-to-read results in less than 30 minutes, potentially before anyone even shows symptoms. Now, current Ebola detection methods are very complex. They're expensive. They require unbroken refrigeration from manufacture to use and up to 12 hours from testing to diagnosis. Oliver's test provides rapid, inexpensive, accurate detection of Ebola virus based on colour change within 30 minutes in individuals prior to them becoming symptomatic. Now, this early detection of virus is critical for patients since the faster you begin to treat someone, the more likely they are to survive. Having a test that is simple, can be stored in a room at room temperature, is absolutely a game changer. Hellersley's currently entering a junior year, junior year at Greenwich High School in Connecticut, and a test can be adapted to detect HIV, dengue and yellow fever, Lyme disease, and even certain cancers. As the winner of the fifth annual Google Science Fair, she takes home 50 grand in scholarship funding from Google. And I look, I think by the look of her trajectory, um, that $50,000 will come in very handy to build, to develop perhaps a new Nobel Prize winner. You know, stories like that really make you feel proud of our generation wise, the millennial generation, much maligned. I've never bought it. I've always thought that they're the best equipped um, generation to get us out of the mess that our generation got us into. Now, if you're a, Go, a fan of GoPro, like I am, there could be a fair way yet for the shares to fall. From its high of $98 just 12 months ago, $25 is looking possible, as its latest release was totally underwhelming. And uh, Apple's upgraded camera produces much more high-resolution video. So although some analysts think Apple could be a requirer of GoPro, why the hell would they want to? You know, every time you read about Apple wanting to, they could possibly acquire GoPro, why would they want to? They've got a better product. They can develop it in-house really easily. So if you're hanging around on your GoTo, GoPro shares waiting for a buyout, it could be a longer wait than Trump assuming the presidency. And that's not going to happen before hell freezes over. So one industry that's undergone 
unbelievable change over the years is the recording industry. What a roller coaster ride that's been. And uh, my guest after the break today is a great friend, friend a barbecue buddy, um, Candace Stewart's a recording industry veteran with over 20 years' experience in recording studio management. She's managed some of the top studios in the world. She's worked with artists from the Rolling Stones, Tom Petty, Red Hot, Chili Peppers, Madonna, Ice Cube, Snoop Dogg, to film composers. She has worked with everybody, knows everybody, and has one hell of a lot of great secrets. Candace is a great communicator. She's a great negotiator. And I've never met anybody who doesn't love her. She's really edgy, good lady, and uh, I'll be back with Candace right after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. This is where, over the last four years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 250 of the world's most interesting business people, what they do, how they do it, and hopefully find out what makes them tick. Today we have another great interview, and uh, I'm going to enjoy this one because she's a good friend. It's extremely difficult, as we all know, to create a successful business, and we need to be flexible. We need to be able to pivot on a dime because things change very quickly, and we need all the help we can get, and that's why it's so important for all of us to have mentors and to take on board advice that's provided to us by successful people. You know, everybody in business, it doesn't matter what business you're in, faces the same challenges. Everybody thinks that their product is fantastic and the best that's around, and once it's released, everybody will beat a path to their door. But 98% of all startups and businesses go broke. So obviously, that's not the way business works because most entrepreneurs are experts at what they do, but most businesses fail because the entrepreneurs have no knowledge of all the other aspects that go into making a successful business. That's why it's critical you follow, observe, and listen to those who have overcome 
the challenges that we will all face in business. Now, few businesses have undergone the tumultuous change that the recording industry has undergone over the past few years, and what a roller coaster ride that's been. Um, music today is totally different, and my guest today is Candace Stewart, an industry veteran with over 20 years' experience in recording studio management. She's managed some of the top recording studios in the world. She's worked with artists in all genres from the Rolling Stones and Tom Petty and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Madonna and Ice Cube and Snoop Dogg to film composers. In a tenure as manager, she's navigated the huge changes that have happened in the industry very adroitly and she is now manager at East West Studios, which is the world premier recording facility and it's located right in the heart of Hollywood and I must say just up the road from a really good little restaurant. And uh, East West Studios have given rise to some of the most celebrated music of the past 50 years, from Frank Sinatra to the Rolling Stones, and it's produced more Grammy-winning albums than any other studio in the world. And when you look at the history, it's amazing. Um, Frank Sinatra recorded My Way and That's Life in New York, New York at East West Studios. Elvis Presley revived his career with the 1968 comeback special there. I remember that special vividly. Barbara Streisand recorded a smash the way we were at East West. Michael Jackson, Thriller, the unbelievable Beach Boys Pet Sands album, Mamas and the Poppers, and on and on and on and on. Candace has worked with and is friends with the greatest acts in music. I'm also proud to call her my friend. She's one of the world's great people. One hell of a cook at our regular barbecues. Cuts a mean figure in the pool. And has a personality that just doesn't quit. Hi, girl. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Well, thank you, Bob. What an incredible introduction. Um, first, let me say thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. And I uh, want to just mention also that East West has had several different names. It is East West Studios now. And a lot of the wonderful credits that you mentioned happened when it was uh, Western Recorders in its original incarnation, and then it became uh, Ocean Way, and then uh, it became Cello, and I was the manager at Cello uh, in the late 90s to 05, and then I returned when my current, when the current owner uh, purchased it in 06 and did some uh, wonderful redesigns and facelifts to the studio, and I came back in 2010. So yeah, I just want to get the credit out there for okay. the right, uh, the right decades. <laughs> um, well, thank you too because you're recuperating, um, and you just had the stitches out just an hour or so ago, and so yeah, I you thank you. Tough. Now, you're a girl coming all the way from lovely. I mean, lovely. Really mean lovely. I'm not being sarcastic. Conservatives. Charleston, South Carolina, where people still go out with the big hats and do all that. It's a wonderful yeah, place. I love true. it. And uh, from Charleston to the wild business of rock and roll in LA, and you've got a psych uh, background. So how the yep. hell did you get into the music business? Well, you know, it's kind of a, uh, it's an interesting, uh, everyone thinks their own stories are interesting, of course, but it is kind of an interesting story. I have a, uh, three older brothers and two of them are musicians 
And in our small town, they kind of had built a name for themselves and were opening for the likes of the Allman Brothers and, you know, Spencer Davis and people like that. So when I was in high school, uh, my older brothers, the two older boys, uh, decided to seek their fame and fortune and move out to L.A. to pursue careers as musicians. Right. Well, we can, we can imagine what, where that went. Since, <laughs> since you haven't heard of Rick and Steve Smith as famous musicians, I'll just tell you that that didn't work out. But... Uh, my older brother Richard got a, a job. They called. They didn't even call them interns. They called them janitors at the record plant on Third Street in Hollywood. Yeah, janitors. And then, and then he pulled in my other brother, Steve Smith, and uh, the two of them worked at the record plant. And this is in the late wild '60s in Los Angeles, okay, and early '70s. And uh, I was still in high school in South Carolina, and I would come out to visit. And I was very proud of them and thought that that was neat, but never imagined in a million years that I didn't, I was the only one in my family who doesn't play, I'm the, I'm the only one in my family who doesn't play an instrument or isn't a painter. I have another brother who's an incredible photographer who you've met. And uh, basically, you know, I would come out and visit in high school and thought, well, that's kind of cool, you know, who doesn't like, you know, drugs, you said, sex, and rock and roll. Yeah, I was going to say sex, <laughs> drugs, and rock and roll, you know. It was 1970s. <laughs> so then uh, I finally, uh, I, I finished college and I came out and it was my intention to be a marriage counselor. <laughs> so I came out to L.A., yeah, I came out, yeah. I think it's probably still my calling. But I came out to L.A. and uh, was bartending because that's what I did to get through school. And my brother had taken over a room at what is now called Glenwood Place. It's still right. a studio, but at that time it had been Kendon, which was a very famous studio, one of the early studios in L.A., Kendon Recorders. And uh, I was working, you know, he was going to train me to be an assistant engineer and stop me if this gets too wordy because it's a long story. No, I, no, I, was trained to be an, I was trained to be an assistant engineer and after about a year of that, and he was a real taskmaster, hopefully he'll listen to this interview and not be too hurt, but... It was kind of like Cool Hand Luke, you know, he'd make me, you know, dig the hole and fill the hole back up again and dig it again, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and I was already pretty, you know, I was pretty formed. I was already 25, so I was kind of like, this is, you know, I don't know if I have the, the wherewithal or the electronics background to do the engineering, which I, which I really admire. I'm a huge champion of engineers. But uh, I said to him one day, after a particularly long 40-hour day, of working with, uh, I think it was actually Roy Orbison and Katie Lang. Uh, I said to him, I said, you know, I don't think I have the aptitude to do this at the level that I personally would want to do it, but I like the sales and I like the booking. And you mentioned that I come from South Carolina, which is an incredibly gracious place. It is, and absolutely. I had a background in, uh, I had a background in hospitality, you know, hotels. I'd worked at hotels and been a, been a bartender and a caterer. And so that natural sort of hostessing ability fit right in to the studio world because I yeah. often say that they're hotels with technology. So that's how that started, and it was a place called Take One. And I'll tell you about my first gig uh, was actually booking a band that I thought at the time I didn't really care for. They were called Guns and Roses. And All right, their first okay big record, which was a big record called Appetite for Destruction, and sure. ended up being a huge, one of the biggest selling records of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm, yeah. I'm, still getting, I'm, still, I'm still getting over the gracious part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> well, you probably don't see it that way because you know me to have a repulsive sense of humor. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I'd, say, I'd say you're pretty gracious as well, you know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, what... What was the difference in the in the music? Well, firstly, in the music business, for, as far as performers go and their professionalism back in the eighties, and the way that studios worked back in the eighties, we we seem to think of the eighties as sort of not quite as wild as the sixties, maybe, but still pretty wild times in the music business. Well, I think that. Um the main difference, and I think every a few people would probably remember this. I don't know your demographic demographic of your listeners. I'm sure it's across the map in age, but uh, remember that uh, video killed the radio star. Remember that video song? Video kills lot of the radio yeah, star. Well, yeah, I know that's a great a song. Truth, it is, but there's a lot of truth to that because when video came along as a medium for marketing and for promotion, it cut drastically into the recording budget of artists because prior to that promotion and still promotion still is, you know, radio promotion, internet promotion. Yeah. Some of that hasn't changed. God bless Paola. Paola's not a bad thing. People <laughs> people need to understand Paola's a good thing. But uh it's called relationships, you know what I mean? But yeah. uh what happened was uh at that time, um the budget started to go more towards video. You know, you'd spend a hundred grand on a video and so the 300 grand you were spending on a record turned into 100 grand. And then the, really the main thing that happened at that time also gradually was that people, people couldn't record in their homes. You know, I've, I've often said that I think artist empowerment is a good thing. I think that artists being able to record their own music is a good thing. But the key word is if you're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people, uh, people, as time has gone by, have not necessarily cherished the value of acoustics, the room as an instrument, engineering as a skill, which is like, again, I'm a champion of engineers. But Extraordinary. The yeah, main difference was that people, people didn't buy large format consoles to put in their houses. You had a few artists like a Henry Mancini. Or a couple people, but even Frank Sinatra and even the artists of the day and even the artists of the 80s, very few of them had their own studios. They had writing rooms or they maybe had a small setup, but they didn't have a really, truly designed acoustic space because it's expensive, you know, yeah. and, and uh, uh, equipment, again, large format consoles, tape machines, you needed operators, you know, it wasn't like sitting at a computer. Yep. So uh, I'm kind of dovetailing into probably another question, but that is that the main changes are that you can now, the computer basically replaced the tape machine. That's the main difference. That is the main fundamental difference. And uh, gear became less expensive and became more, you know, accessible. And so a person who wasn't necessarily, quote, unquote, a professional recording engineer could now actually do decent sounding stuff in their house or could record it or an artist could record themselves in their house. Um, but we could, we could talk about that for days and days about why I think that's not necessarily what people should do. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I heard that um, Katie Lang recorded her last album in her kitchen on her Apple. Yeah. And it was a pretty, know, good, a pretty good album for a kitchen you know you i mentioned the bl 
She had the blender turned and off and everything. You but... know, she she's she's living proof of good is good. I mean, she's an amazing singer. She's an amazing songwriter. You know, and you know the Beatles did vocals in bathrooms. But yeah. um, again, I think that that's a that's a po- that's a positive example. That's a good artist making a decent sounding record. You know, in her kitchen, but she's probably not telling you that she sent it to a mixer or that it was mass. It was certainly would have been mastered professionally. Somewhere along the line, she probably pulled somebody else in to polish up what she yeah. was doing. What for, <laughs> let's just go back to an engineer for a minute. Um, does it is it is an engineer primarily a technician or is an engineer? primarily somebody that has a fantastic ear for music. You know what? It's equally both, both and that's a, that you asked the question perfectly. Um, it's probably one of the most unusual blends of art and science that I've ever witnessed. Um, like a graphic artist who uses a tool but has to be an artist. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. An engineer has to have good ears, but he must be especially technically knowledgeable we're changing times, you know. I mean, again, the fundamentals are the same. The fundamentals are the song, the performance, um, and the engineer's ears, the producer, et cetera, et cetera. But if the engineer can make a huge difference, I mean, there's so often the sixth member of the band. Uh, there's a couple of amazing documentaries, and one that I make everyone that works for me Everyone that ever worked for me, I make them watch. It's called The Language of Music. Right. And it's about Tom Dowd. And he was an unbelievable engineer in the early days of Atlantic. And he was a pioneer. And he and Les Paul, uh, the people that are alive today, Al Schmidt, Phil Ramon, God rest his soul, who just passed away. These guys were innovators. You know, Jeff Emmerich, who recorded the Beatles. You know, these guys, they thought outside the box. You know, Jeff Emmerich you know, put John Lennon on a swing and he put microphones around in a giant circle inside Abbey Road and he pushed him, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he let him swing around the room and he sang, you know, for Chagaru Day. So, I mean, it's just, there's so there's such creativity that goes into it. There's artistry that goes into it. Got to have good ears. That's for yeah. sure. You might have a blind engineer, but you probably won't have a deaf one. Yeah, okay. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's a real mix of art and science. I'm a, I'm a champion of engineers. People don't realize how important they are. How um, watching, say, um, Love and Mercy, the uh, story of Brian Wilson, um, and his supposed ability to be able to um, hear the finished result of a song in his head with all the harmonies and everything else that goes with it. Oh, yeah. How well, does he, was, he, was, he was a singular genius. I mean, uh, there are others out there that do the same thing, but all musicians. I mean, I'm married to an incredible guitar player, and I think when he has a song in his head, or any artist, any art form, it's in them, and they want to get it out. And I think that some people are very particularly skilled in composition, for example, there are film composers that couldn't write a song. Right. You know, it's very different to be a lyricist and a songwriter than it is to be a film composer. So, right. and the two, the two admire each other. It's a, it's a different skill set. You think it would be the same, and it's not. But for someone like Brian, Brian really heard complete 
pieces of music in his head. And he actually, with the help of Chuck Britz, his engineer, uh, who's ever-present, you know, he would, Brian would tell him what he wanted. He had the incredible wrecking crew, you know, the session players in L.A. at the time, which are just unparalleled, and still today they're amazing. Uh, So he had Van Dyke Parks. He was an incredible arranger. So Brian would explain what he wanted, and he knew how to explain what he wanted, and then if he wasn't getting what he wanted, he knew how to explain that as well. So he just, he he was such, he is still such an incredibly musical being. I've had the great pleasure of meeting him several times. Uh, yeah, he's a talent, you know, and there are others. There are others that are, I don't know, as talented, but there are other people like that. You know, he just, Dylan? he just knew what he wanted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John Lennon. I would say John Lennon. I would say... You know, Paul McCartney, I would say, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, I mean, there's Stevie Wonder is a wonderful example of that. Stevie Wonder knows he's, you know, he's blind, I mean, but he he hears it in his head, he feels it, and he expresses it, and he explains it to the people around him to, to get it done, so... God bless us. God bless us for having people like that in the world. Oh, isn't it amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Um... So what does a studio manager do? You get up in the morning, you have your, <laughs> you have your shot of caffeine. What do you do then? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's not unlike, you know, any sales job. I mean, it's, um, it's, it is a lot like managing a hotel. I mean, instead of having, you know, 100 rooms, I've got four. But ultimately, at the end of the day, time is probably the most perishable commodity of all. And everybody today is familiar with Hotels.com and Hotwire and all the things that people use to to book a hotel room. Booking a studio is very similar. You have to have a group of people, which is ever-changing. You have to meet new producers. You have to always be networking. You have to be reaching out to to your client base, to your target, which is... Primarily, actually, not artists. I mean, again, I go back to the engineer-producer thing. An artist makes one record a year, maybe every two years, but engineers and producers are always working. Right. So they're really the people who choose the studio. Yeah, artists do sometimes, but the engineer and the producer, the artist will usually defer. If the artist will ask the engineer-producer, where do you like to work? And they'll say, well, I like to work at East West. So my job is to always make sure that those relationships are going strong. And again, it's sales. I do, uh, you know, I run this, you running, P- I think we all know that managing people is probably the hardest aspect of any <laughs> any management job. Particularly you know? people in the music business because of oh, a fair bit goodness. of emotion. Yeah, and, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, we, we have a running joke. I don't care about your car. I don't care about your girlfriend. I don't care about your girlfriend's car. You know, that's that's kind of the... Yeah the way that I would talk to my staff. I mean, people that get into doing what we do, they're very dedicated, and there's a lot of schools now which weren't around before, and I'm a champion of the schools. A lot of people put the schools down, but the schools, I don't really hire anybody that hasn't gone to school because I want someone that has that fundamental reality check of what they're getting into. So uh, on a day-to-day basis, I go in, I'm constantly scheduling, and my schedule changes. It would really surprise you how... Uh, frequently it changes. It changes minute to minute. 
And right. that's another thing that has changed a great deal in the recording industry was that people planned ahead. They booked studio time ahead. They knew what they were going to do. They had a plan. Well, as is our modern age of, you know, things happening last minute, you know, I could get a call today for a major artist. I could get a call this afternoon for a session tonight. Um, the thing that I am most surprised by is that people are scheduling string dates last minute. That still blows me away because that requires a lot of moving parts. Yeah. But uh, So what I do is I go in, I go over with my assistant, whatever leads may be happening. I stare at my email. My email's always on. So I am reaching out to people if I have open time, letting them know that I have open time, and that's engineers, producers, managers, A&R people, artists, artists, managers, business managers, and that I'm also, um, you know, I'm just following up on leads, and I'm I'm pretty aggressive. So I am yeah, always yeah, I can imagine at, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking to see. I'm looking in the trades. Uh, Music Connection is a, a trade magazine that I use a lot. Want to give them a plug because I've been using them since I very first started, and now they have a digital version. And so I go online, and I, they have a signings and assignment column. So I can see when an artist has been signed, and when an artist has been signed, that means they're going to do a record. So right away, I'm out trying to figure out who would they be working with. Uh, I check iTunes a lot. I check uh, the charts a lot, the Billboard charts, the iTunes charts. I check those very regularly, and I reach out to those engineers, producers, and artists to make sure that they're aware of us. You know, and I basically invite them to come have a drink. (laughs) That's not like you. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know me, so that's kind of what I do. So, <laughs> how much of your job is acting as a shrink to keep sort of warring factions of particular wow. bands focused uh, on the job of recording? <laughs> well, you know, with the artists, you know, a lot of the high-end artists have their own handlers. You know, if you're dealing with yeah. someone like the Stones or the Peppers or somebody like that, they've got their people. And I mean, uh, what, at that I point, think what, quite honestly... I think what a lot of people don't understand is that with a group like the Stones, each of the um, musicians has their own everything. <laughs> their, Absolutely. Their own management, Absolutely. their own PR, their own everything, all all within the band. Absolutely. That must be a- I mean, that's a classic. The Stones are a classic example because Jane Rose, who is Keith Richards, you know, day to day, worked for the Stones and worked with Mick, and then Mick sort of sent her on, you know, and then she's been with Keith for a very, very long time. And you don't do anything with Keith that you're not going through Jane Rose. So, yeah. Right. But she's she's lovely. She's tough, you know, tough cookie. I can imagine. um, But I don't actually, to to be quite honest, as a manager, uh, once they're in the studio, I actually stay out of their way. And one of the things I do is I don't go into the studio. I'm... You know, if they invite me in, that's one thing. I'd certainly love to say hello to the clients. I'm always gracious to the clients. But make no mistake, and I explain this to my staff, that, you know, we're there to facilitate their creative process. We're there to set them up with everything they need and then get out of the way. Right. You know, um, so as gregarious as I am, I often, I sometimes don't even meet the artist. A lot of times I deal with the manager or I'm dealing with the A&R person or the producer, and many, many times I don't meet the artist. So, but I do know a lot of artists. But yeah, I do yeah, know I a know lot you. of artists. But a lot of times I don't meet them. What? Um, 
So what sort of people skills does an engineer need to have to be able to negotiate? Because I can imagine. Um, you know, again, with, I think that that is, I think it's one of the hardest jobs. I mean, being an assistant engineer, that the, the path is sort of an apprenticeship journeyman path. You, you start out as a, an intern, then you get a higher position as what's called a runner, which you're going to get food and stuff like that. And I, it would be the same as a PA in the film industry. And I, I know you have interns also in radio, at radio yeah. stations and stuff like that. And then they become what's called an assistant engineer. And an assistant engineer works for the studio, knows all of the equipment, gets paid by the studio. And right. the engineers that come in are usually freelance. It's the first engineer. It's a two-person job. So... The first engineer is a freelance guy, either, either the artist brings them in or I have a roster of people that I'll hire for people if they don't have someone that they regularly use. And I think that both the assistant engineering job and then you, you, the goal is to align yourself with a producer or an artist and to segue out of working at a studio and to become freelance. Well, now you've got a whole other set of, you know, whole other yeah. set of challenges because <laughs> yeah. it's and you can relate to this because you now are basically working for yourself, selling yourself, marketing yourself, getting the work, getting paid, which is yeah. a whole other skill set. <laughs> and uh, so you have to have people skills, definitely have to be a good vibe. You have to, I mean, a control room is a bit of a locker room environment and a normal recording day is 12 hours. So that's a standard day So uh, for music. And, and for scoring as well. Uh, so what happens is you got to be a good hang. You got to be technically proficient. You got to be fun. You know, you got to be somebody fun to be around, yeah. as well as being on your on your game. Because these people are going to be in a room with you for days on end. And then you got to sell got... yourself, and then you got to get paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting paid is always tricky. Um, yeah, I know you've got some great stories. I've heard a few of them. Um, what's your favorite <laughs> artist story? You know, I, I wouldn't want to, oh, there's so, there's so many good ones. Uh, I, I, one of the greatest thrills of my life was meeting Roy Orbison and getting to wear the pink glasses. Uh, shortly <laughs> before he died, I drove him to a donut shop. My, my husband always teases me that I contributed to his demise. I, I don't think I did, but uh, <laughs> so that was a thrill. Um, got working with the Stones, of course, is a thrill. I mean, any artist that you admire, I mean, at the end of the day, I think all of us have a, a part of ourselves where we're a fan, you know, especially yeah, you know, I agree. Coming, coming up at I the agree. time that we did, you know, and loving music being so much a part of my life still, you know, I'm still a yeah. huge fan, and there's a lot of new artists that come out that blow me away, I'm always happy about that, but probably one of my favorite stories, and uh, I'll try to make this concise, this is sort of a three-part story, so... I haven't cleared this with any publicists, so hopefully I don't get in trouble for talking about this <laughs> on the radio. But it's a true story. So um, Mick Jagger had been in the studio, and he was working with Dave Stewart on the soundtrack for Alfie, uh, the movie Alfie. You might remember right. the remake that came out yeah. a few years ago. And um, also, at the, and this is when the studio was called Cello, same location, 6000 Sunset, yeah. but it was called Cello then. And uh, so Mick was working there, uh, Chris Cornell was there with Audio Slave, which of course is uh, the guys from Rage Against the Machine, Tom Morello and Brad yeah. and Tim and Chris Cornell. They were Audio Slave, and Rick Rubin was doing that project. And uh, Bob Rock was working with Motley Crue. And so everybody's in the building at the same time. And 
I'll just mention that occasionally what happens in a situation in most recording studios is that people see each other in the hallway. Now, they don't always collaborate or write together on the spot, but you do see people, you know, you'll see hip-hop artists talking to cellists, and, you know, it's very, it's kind of cool, you know, you'll see people cross-pollinate and exchange information for future work, so that's one of the collaborative things that happens in that in that creative environment, because it's a very private environment, you know, people yeah. feel safe and they're, ha- they're happy when they're in the studio. So what happened was Mick called me on the phone and said that, uh, you know, he was, we had a manual gate at that time and he was getting ready to pull up and he said, you know, can you open the gate? I'm on my way in. And I said, sure. Yeah. You know, no problem. And, uh, so he, uh, he came in and earlier in the day, before Mick came in earlier in the day, Nikki Six had come into my office and said, I would really like to meet Chris Cornell. Would you introduce me to Chris Cornell? I'm a, a huge fan of Chris Cornell's. And I said, and I, I love Chris. I think he's an amazing, amazing singer. And I love Soundgarden, and they're back together, which is great. But So I said, sure. So I introduced them to each other. And this is hours before. So I introduced them to each other. And then Mick calls, and Mick's coming in, and he walks into my office because they had changed studios that day, and they were now going into mixing instead of overdubbing, and Mick didn't know which room he was in. So he came into the office, and he said, where am I today? And I, he's, so, he's so delightful. If you ever meet Mick Jagger, he's probably one of the funniest, nicest people on the earth. He's just a true gentleman and uh, really fun. And uh, I said, oh, you're in another room. You're on the east side. Let me take you there, and then we hear outside my door because someone had opened the door to the large studio, Studio One, Bob. Which I think you've seen Studio One. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yep. And Motley Crue was in Studio One, and they're playing "Street Fighting Man," and Chris Cornell is singing. And Chris Cornell is not Motley Crue. You know, they're just messing around. So I buzz into the control room and I ask the assistant engineer. And I said, you know, what are you guys doing right now? You're just just having fun. And he said, yeah, we're not recording. That's another thing. It's a lot of studio etiquette that goes on. You don't ever want to walk right. into a studio because people are recording. But uh, I buzzed in. He says, no, no, we're just we're just playing around. And uh, so so I said, oh, this will be great. And I said, I'm going to come through the back door with somebody. <laughs> so they're playing Street Fighting Man. It's Molly Crew. Chris Cornell is singing. And I walk into the back of the room with Mick Jagger. <laughs> and uh, Bob Rock is in the control room, and his, you know, he smiles at me and his jaw drops. And then Chris is facing away from me, but everyone stops playing. You know, Nikki and Mick Mars, everybody yeah. stops playing. And, and Chris has got his back to me, and then he stops and turns around, and Mick starts clapping very loudly <laughs> and just says, uh, carry on, mate, carry on, mate. And he, he says, I sanction it. No worries. Go ahead. And he looks at Chris <laughs> Cornell and he goes, not bad. <laughs> it was just a moment in time. It was one of my favorite, one of my favorite days to see rock stars in awe of a rock star. Yeah, that's it great. Was great. Okay, that's who's the most day. talented, who's the most talented solo artist and who's the best group that you've ever heard or ever the recorded? The best what? The best solo artist, most talented. Uh-huh. And the most talented group. Oh, gosh. You know, well, that's such a subjective thing. I know, you know it is. Uh, probably the talent me, the doors, but uh, that's another story. Um, uh, that I've had the occasion to meet. Um, wow. That is such a hard question. I think that 
uh, Chris Cornell and Robin Zander are probably some of the best rock singers alive. And right. uh, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and of course Chris from yep. Soundgarden. Uh, wow, that's a toughie. Um, 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 oh, okay, you know I won't put. I won't put you on well, the no, spot. Well, no, I can tell you. I can tell you a new artist. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you some a, a solo artist who is probably one of the finest singers and is new on the scene a few years in. Her name is L.P., letter L, letter P, and keep an eye out for her because she is just one of the most, and when I tell you groundbreaking singers, I mean a voice like you have never heard, like you'll remember for the rest of your life, like a Barbara Streisand or whatever. But she's, okay. a, she's a writer, and she's a, 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 a pop rock singer and has a band. She's amazing. She's amazing. Big okay, best group. Then as a group, uh... You know, I'm I'm kind of a Stones, Chili Peppers girl. I gotta yeah. admit it. I okay. I'm really honored to have, and I'm an L. You know, the Chili Peppers are one of LA's own, and I've seen them go through a lot of changes. I'm a huge fan of U2 as well. Sure. I think U2, the Chili Peppers, the Stones. I think they're some of the, you know, they're the seminal rock bands that are still out there doing it, and they're still kicking ass. I mean. No flies on Mick and Keith. I mean, they're yeah, they're, they're good. I they're, mean, <laughs> they're, they're older than you, Bob, but they're still out there doing it. Yep. Well, Candice, we're very short of time, so I've got to congratulate you. This is the first time you've spoken for thirty-five minutes without saying "fuck" ever. <laughs> Not once. What? I am so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> Normally we would have racked we would have racked up a hundred by now. So you're on your best behaviour. Well, I, I you know I'm trying to trying to give you a little bit of professionalism there, but that was really fun. Yeah, no, really thank fun. You. I'm happy to help. Thank you so much, Candice. Thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now you can learn more about Candice and East West Studios by going to East West Studio Singular dot. So eastweststudio.com. Thanks, mate. I'll see you at the next barbecue. Stay in touch, darling, and safe travels. Thank you. I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. I love that girl. What a great interview. Um, She's got some fantastic stories, most of which are not uh, suitable to tell on the air. I'm often involved in discussions with entrepreneurs who can't understand why they can't stay on a CEO and why they can't hold on to 80% of their stock in the companies they founded. Um, It usually ends up with a bit of an argument with the entrepreneur believing that you're trying to rip them off. I try to explain that there are many entrepreneurs with hugely successful companies who happily give up 90% of their company shares. And uh, many people in startups dream of building a startup, remaining a CEO, making it grow, taking it public, getting rich along the way. 
Well, there are a few problems with that uh, scenario. First of all, being a CEO is a highly specialised role and you need to not only be proficient but highly proficient in a number of roles from management to accounting, HR and many, many roles in between and you cannot be a successful CEO and be the driving force entrepreneur that a startup needs except in extraordinary circumstances. Um, and one thing these dreamers don't realise is that these days, by the time a tech company goes public, the founders tend to own very little of it. Often they own less than 10% of their own companies. For example, Aaron Levy, the founder of Box, owned only 6% of the company after his IPO. IPO. Um, Zandesk co-founder and CEO Mikkel Svein owned about 8% after the IPO. So... You know, as a rule of thumb, a successful company will dilute itself by raising more and more money, but the key is that the valuation will go up, and that is far more important than the percentage you own. Um, I used to have a multi-billionaire as a, as a boss, I was marketing director, and he used to say, it's not the percentage of the company you own, it's how many shares and what each of those shares is worth that's important. So... Startups these days often raise smaller amounts but have more rounds. They um, C, D, E, F, etc. as the company hits milestones like delivering products, early breakthroughs, um, scaling the sales team, expanding into new geographies, etc., etc. And each time they raise a round, they're selling off more of their companies and diluting their shares. So ultimately the goal is to build a really big business so even though the stake gets smaller, even down to single bit digits, it's worth more and more as the company grows. And uh, for those of you who love that wonderful songstress Eartha Kitt or who can remember her, I think she said it best, Eartha said, greed is so destructive, it destroys absolutely everything. And I think that's really true. Now, make sure you uh, subscribe to my monthly newsletter and the radio summary, which is sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. And you subscribe simply by going to bobpritchard.com. And if you're not yet a member of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management, and you really want to improve your skill level, improve your status, and increase your network, you should join today. You go to AISMM.us and join now. So thanks for joining us for today's show. We look forward to you joining us again next week. In the meanwhile, remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope and you're not right on the edge, you're taking up far too much space. So get out of the way and let somebody who wants to get through do it. And it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.